Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. I want to thank you for tuning in. I'm so glad to share the next few minutes with you today. I hope today is a really good day for you. At Valley View Friends Church, we like to say that we're learning how to live as God's people, reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. I want to encourage you to look us up on the web at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. You can also find us on Facebook. Today, we're going to continue our series from the teaching of Jesus, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon is a sermon in which Jesus calls the Christian to live a holy life. Well, we live in the age of the internet influencer. People more than ever are leveraging the internet and social media to make a career out of promoting lifestyles or a hobby. And all of it usually comes down to eventually products. An influencer is a person who uses social media, uh, sources like Instagram or YouTube or even Twitter, to develop a bond, and this is the key here, a bond of trust with their fans. One of the keys of success is that the influencer must seem like you and me, ordinary, like I could do what they do. That bond of believability, of trustworthiness, is then used to influence fans to purchase promoted promoted products. Uh, I know it maybe sounds a little insidious, but it's most cases I don't think it really is. Some it is, probably. I think of influencers really as homemade or amateur celebrities. These days, anyone can take a shot at becoming famous online. And perhaps that adds to the believability. We like to watch someone, a person who seems like me. There's a recent survey done. Actually, it's not so recent now. It's a few years old. And it found that 54% of 13 to 38-year-olds want to become social media influencers. Over half the population of those who are 13 to 38. YouTube, in case you're wondering, is a major force in social media. I don't know that we always think of it as a social media website, but it's a place where people go and watch videos and they post and communicate about those videos. So it's social media and it's estimated that YouTube, ah, this blows my mind, 92% of Americans use YouTube weekly. That's a lot of views. That's a lot of clicks. That's a lot of likes and a lot of trolls in the comments. In the end, this all adds up to a lot of people using the internet to connect with other people. But it's not just connection. And as their job title describes, they influence. They influence your desire for products. They influence your opinion over events of today. They influence the aspirations of our young people. Parents, you might be impacted by social media uh, influencers. I think just about everybody is anymore. But have you asked your kids or your grandkids what they like to watch online? The answers might surprise you. Those personalities hold the power of celebrity, of neighbor, of peer, and now of friend. Like someone we kind of feel like we know, all in one package. And that's a lot of influence. And this influence is not necessarily wrong, or it's not even always evil with intention. It's often very good. But it is a shift in our culture that has been happening over the last 10 years or so. And so we see the word influence at work at a speed it has never been at work at before. It's fast now. All that to say, our culture of social media influencers allows us to understand Jesus' call 
for you and me to be salt and light in a new way or stronger way than ever before. Because Jesus tells us to be influencers, to share the gospel with others so that they would be changed. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells his disciples that they are the salt and the light to the world. It's not a command. It's a statement of reality. It's not that we choose to be salt and light. Jesus is telling us that we are salt and light. And it's whether we embrace and succeed at being salt and light or we make a bad name as salt and light. And that's the reality. Jesus wants you and I, the Christian, to be an influencer. Not to pressure people, but to help people. It's not out of self-promotion or a desire for popularity or to gain wealth or to please ourselves, but to share the gospel with others in a way that transforms their lives. Jesus asks us to be influencers because the gospel is the only hope for the world. The cross of Christ is the only way to salvation and eternity in heaven. And we live either well or poorly for the message of the gospel. One way, we will help others. And the other way, if we are poor at being salt and light, we'll If we do a bad job at it, we'll increase misery. We might even drive people away from Jesus. Jesus does not want us, as our culture would say today, present a clickbait gospel. Meaning, he doesn't want us to have a big, fancy, flashy title that gets a lot of attention, but doesn't actually talk about something of substance, of real or truth. He's not asking for bigger and better sales pitches, nor is Jesus asking for picture-perfect enthusiasm or syrupy happiness that our culture craves and that we often see online from influencers. Jesus is asking us to be salt and light with authenticity in our living, honesty in our testimony, frankness in our worship, and intentionality in our holiness. Let's now go to the text and read Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, but will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Jesus declares emphatically that you and I are to be salt and light. That's who we are, and we're to do it well. And refusal to do so is, really, if you look at the words, refusal to be salt and light 
is a waste. Jesus also declares himself as the fulfillment of the law. He ends the sobering truth that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This is quite the contrast to the Beatitudes that promise the kingdom to the least, to the impoverished, and to the imperfect. What's going on here? Just a few lines ago, he was saying, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now he's saying, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The second half of the text tells us about Jesus coming, not to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law. One of the best explanations of fulfillment I've ever heard is simply this. Jesus came to complete it, to fill in the gaps of the law. He fills in the gaps that the law cannot cover. And what is it that the law cannot cover? There's a lot, actually, that it doesn't cover. Paul, the Apostle Paul former Pharisee, so he's a guy we should listen to. He's a Pharisee who is trying to have a righteousness to get into the kingdom of heaven, right? He explains the function of the law. We often see God's law as restrictive rules. Do this, don't do that. Making everything in life boring. That's not what it's doing. That would be true. It would be boring. It would be awful. Laws would be awful if we had to earn salvation by obeying. That's not how it works. The law's purpose is to make us aware of our sin and be aware of a need for help out of our sin. Romans chapter 3, written by the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee, I would add, writes these words. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. See, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. The law makes us aware of our sin. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to finish the job. So the law makes us aware of our sin, and Jesus has paid for our sin with his body and his blood on the cross. So if you'll believe in Jesus, if you'll let him be Lord over your life, he will fulfill the law, he will finish the job, and he will bring salvation to you today. And then this is where the teaching of the salt and the light comes in. When you have let Jesus fulfill the law in your life, now you're called to be salt and light proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Jesus tells you and me that we are to be salt and light to the world. He's telling you that you are to influence the world to tell people about Jesus fulfilling the law. The question becomes, will you influence the world for Christ? Or will you influence the world for yourself? There's a lot of people doing that. Last week, we spoke of the Beatitudes, and they described the characteristics of the disciples. Meek, poor in spirit, humble. All different kinds of qualities. This week, we find that salt and light indicate the Christians not characteristics, but influence on the world. So, here's a few things that we should note about salt and light. First one is this. Salt and light bring the essentials of life to every person, and that's the job of the Christian. We're to bring the essentials of life to every person, really the gospel. And... Oftentimes, to share the gospel, we bring things, very important needs. We meet the needs of others. The Romans had a saying, there is nothing so useful as sun and salt. Good phrase. Every person on earth knows the comfort and usefulness of light. 
And every home, however poor, used in Roman times and still uses whenever they can salt. It has so many purposes and functions. It's really important. Jesus calls for you to influence the world. And it's not to get people to be like you and me. Jesus is calling, Jesus's call is for you and me to bring that which is universally needed into the life of every person. We are to bring the message of Jesus, the good news of salvation to every person. So when he says you're to be salt and light, he says your job is to bring the essentials to every person wherever you can, and that's to bring Jesus to every person you can. Second thing about salt and light. Salt and light show the differences between the believer and the non-believer. That Jesus asks his disciples to be salt and light is an indication that the Christian and the non-Christian are different from each other. This is really important for us to get our, our minds around a little bit. We have to be different. There's supposed to be a distinction. This is not based on superiority or making others feel inferior or pointing out how wrong others are as our society is so apt to do anymore over any idea or any issue. This is about people being under the redeeming power of the cross. The salvation of Jesus calls us to a different way of life than what we knew before we were, when we were stuck in our sin. The world and the church are different. There is no getting around that. The church and the world are distinct communities. And it is fashionable today to blur the distinction between the church and the world and refer to humanity as ah, everybody's God's people. Everybody's loved by God. Everybody is loved by God, but never everybody is God's people yet. Helmut Tillichy. That's a name, in case you don't know. That's a name, Helmut Tillichy. He was a major theologian from post-World War II Germany. And he says of the modern Christian this, and I guess maybe it's not the modern Christian anymore, but I think it still describes it well. He writes these words. One would think their ambition is to be the honeypot of the world. They sweetened, they sweeten and sugar the bitterness of life with an all too easy conception of a loving God. But Jesus did not say you are the honey of the world. He said you are the salt of the earth. And salt bites, and, an un, and the unadulterated message of the judgment and grace of God has always been a biting thing. That's interesting. I don't think we're comfortable with that idea, but we need to be. Because this distinction that you are salt, you are light, creates a responsibility for the Christian. And the you is emphatic. It's best understood as you and only you are the salt of the world. You are the salt of the world. You are different, but you have a mission. Go and share the news. It's good. It's not an oppressive mission. It's a life-giving mission. So let's talk about salt and how is a Christian like salt? Because it's an interesting image. That salty, salty stuff, right? Salt has many functions, more than we can mention here today, but I want to mention three. Okay. Salt is a preservative. I think this is something a lot of people understand. It's used and is still used to preserve food, to keep it from going rotten. And one of the jobs of the Christian and the church is to, enact, is to act as a preservative for our world. Now, there's a limit to what we can preserve. 
And I think we can see a lot of the world spinning out of control. It feels like it's going rotten, right? And that shows us one of the differences. The world manifests a constant tendency to deteriorate. It cannot stop itself from going bad. It's just going to do it. People, the way we act, the things we value goes bad over time. Now, we can't stop the power and decay of sin, but we can slow it down as Christians. We can preserve and, most importantly, Though we can't stop the power and decay of sin, Christians, we can point to Jesus, who is the solution to sin. The second thing that salt does is it adds flavor. Uh, My wife, Betsy, she loves to watch cooking competition shows. I do not like cooking competition shows. I like to watch actual cooking shows that teach you something about cooking. But she likes the competition shows. Uh, And so I find myself watching a lot of those shows because I love my wife and it's what she wants to do. And so I want to share some time with her. Now, one of the most common critiques on those cooking competition shows is that the judges, they say, well, you didn't add enough salt. It's it's almost always the the critique is you didn't add enough salt or the, the, the you did too little or very seldom is it too much. And they'll say, hey, salt was your chance at bringing out flavor. Um, you know that salt, when you add it to a, a food, it can actually enhance sweetness. It can reduce bitterness. It can pull moisture out of a food. That's how it actually enhances flavor the most is when you salt something, it pulls some moisture out of the food and water dilutes flavor. So less water means you intensify a flavor. So adding salt gets the water out and makes the flavor stand out even more. As salt of the world, the Christian is to add flavor to increase, yes, even though we're not to be a honeypot, we do increase sweetness and we do reduce bitterness and we are to intensify the wonderful flavors of life. I wonder, have you done that? Can you say you've increased sweetness? You've reduced bitterness? that you are intensifying, really enjoying the flavors of life. That's calling of being salt as a Christian. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that think the Christian takes the flavor out of life. We don't. We shouldn't, at least. Third thing that salt does, or is, it's essential for the human diet. We need salt. Now, I know that too much salt can give you high blood pressure. And I sometimes wonder if when we as Christians are uh, too salty, we make everybody a little stressed out. So we got to find the right balance, right? But it's important. Dr. David Johnson writes these words. He says, sodium is an extremely active element found naturally only in combined form. It always links itself to another element. Chlorine, on the other hand, is a poisonous gas that gives bleach its offensive odor. When sodium and chlorine are combined, the result is sodium chloride, common table salt. The substance we use to preserve meat and bring out its flavor, love and truth can be like sodium and chlorine. Love without truth is flighty, sometimes blind, and willing to combine with various doctrines. On the other hand, truth by itself can be offensive and sometimes even poisonous. Spoken without love, it can turn people away from the gospel. When truth and love are combined, 
In an individual or a church, however, we have what Jesus called the salt of the earth. We're able to preserve and bring out the beauty of our faith. So, truth and love. Table salt. It's a good picture to keep in your mind. Am I being the right type of salt? Are you being table salt? Truth and love combined. So, Jesus talks all about salt, but he says this funny thing. Salt losing its saltiness. What, what good is it, right? How on earth does salt lose its saltiness? Well, salt doesn't really lose its saltiness. It can't lose itself, but it can become contaminated. And salt's a wonderful ingredient until it's mixed with what it shouldn't be, like dirt and debris. Salt can be overdone. Too much salt is just gross. Have you ever tried that? And so can the overbearing Christian be a little gross, right? And salt can lose its effectiveness. In Palestine, in Jesus' day, salt was used to line the ovens of the people. It was used in the ovens to hold heat. And once it lost that ability, something would change in a salt where it couldn't hold heat anymore. It was considered good for nothing, and so it was scraped out of the ovens and thrown into the streets. There's another image of salt, maybe, or losing saltiness. Around the Dead Sea, there are many... Talk about a place with too much salt, and that's a little overbearing, right? Dead Sea, there you go. Don't drink that water. But so, around the Dead Sea, there's a lot of deposits of salt that can be found. Um, and they look like pillars. They actually look like people, these deposits of salt. But also... There are great mounds of material that look like salt. They were once high in salt content, but the salt has long since leached away, and all that's left are impurities. They, they form great, white, tasteless, useless structures. Now, here's something else about the Dead Sea. As the waters of the Dead Sea have dried up, and they have dried up, they've had to put in warning signs because the ground that was once solid has dried, and the salt has leached away, and now you can step on what looks like solid ground, but it's hollow, and so it'll break through into a deep pit. It's very dangerous because the salt has lost its effectiveness. We should hope to never become like these hollowed-out deposits of white powder, completely useless, even deceptive in appearance, and dangerous to unwary wanderers. Well, Jesus also talks about the Christian being called to be a light, that we are a light. The world is always talking about its own enlightenment. We're an enlightened culture. We're growing. We're getting smarter and faster and better at things. But much of it is boasted. Much of what they're boasting about is, is light, but it's really darkness. Jesus asks us to be what he is. I think that's important for us to realize. Jesus is asking us to be what he is. It's in our name, Christian, right? And we talk about being Christ-like all the time. And so it should be no surprise that we are to shine like lights as Jesus does. You know, Jesus describes himself as a light to the world. He says in John 8, chapter 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And a light is meant to be seen or to allow other things to be seen. Light is a guide and it's also a warning. And Jesus, when he's talking about a light, also talks about a city. 
And so why does Jesus mention a city and a light? Why does he put the two together? Well, he says a town built on a hill can't be hidden. It's meant to be seen. A hill is a fortified position. You can see travelers from a long way off when you're on a hill. And weary travelers can see a city from a long way away and have hope. Because the town can be seen from a distance, you can know that you're traveling in the right direction. The sight of a city can encourage you. One more step, one more step, one more step, and we'll get to a place of refuge. And that should be the church. That should be the Christian. When we're called to be light, we're called to be something that people can see and go, okay, I know the direction I need to go. I know I can find refuge there. And neither, and then Jesus continues, you know, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. And so, <laughs> the statement assumes what should be obvious for us to agree with. So, it says, city should be built on a hill, and no one lights a lamp to hide it. And so, we need to remember that. No one lights a lamp to hide it. We just had our VBS family camp at Valley View last weekend. It's a great time, and my wife, Betsy, she led the devotions and the lessons for the children during that time. And she talked about shining our light, and she used an image that I think uh, was really great. She had a lantern that when you pulled it open, it would light up, and you could slide it closed. It would be dark again. And she pointed out that we can often confuse people if we choose to be a light sometimes. We're supposed to be a light all the time. And so she said something like this, Lights today come on with a switch. We can turn them on and off easily. That is often our view of Christianity today. We turn it on and off as we please. If we want to act like a non-Christian, the ones around us, for a while, we just turn off our light and we act like the world. And then when we feel like doing something for Jesus, we turn our light back on again. If we don't want to talk to the person who's sitting all alone, we just turn our light off. And when we decide to help someone, we turn the light back on again. And when we don't stick up for someone that others are making fun of, we turn our light off. And when we're at church, we turn the light back on again. The funny thing is, is that just doesn't work. When we act like the world, like people who don't know Jesus, the world thinks we're just like them. And when we decide to turn our light on, the world sees us as fake and phony. Even worse, we confuse the world as to what the light actually is. I really like that picture because I think there are a lot of us, without thinking about it, we turn on our light, we turn off our light, we turn on our light, we turn off our light, and maybe our children get confused. Oh, that's how Christians are supposed to act. Or our neighbors get confused. Or worse, they say, what a hypocrite. You're not a light all the time, just sometimes. So we are to light a lamp and not put it under a bowl. And why do we light a lamp? Well, to get rid of darkness. You know, we turn on lights to accomplish a task. We turn on a light to make the way clear. We turn on a light to provide comfort. I think it's forgotten today that lamps are lit with purpose. I mean, lights are so common in our, in our country, in America. We don't even think about all that goes on into turning on a light. 
and in our house, <laughs> the Walker household, I am forever turning off lights in our home. It's a trail of lights. I can follow our son around Seth. He just he flips on every light switch whenever he walks through a room or through a hallway and he leaves it on and I'm forever turning them off. He doesn't even think about what it's taking to turn that on. In the ancient world, though, lights were only lit when there was a job to be done. When there is a task to accomplish or an important person to wait for. So Jesus says you're to be a light to the world. Nobody lights a light and puts it under a bowl. What happens when you put a light under a bowl? Well, you cover the source of light, right? It makes darkness and it runs out of oxygen under that bowl and it snuffs out the light because they were burning oil and you're wasting something precious. The oil needed to light the lamp was limited and precious, and light itself was not to be wasted. When lamps were lit in Jesus' day, they were put on stands so that as many people as possible could benefit from their light because it was an expensive thing. Light was a comfort for those lost in the dark. That was true in Jesus' day. It's been true in my day. When I was in Boy Scouts, uh, I would go to the annual summer camp It was a week-long camp, and on Friday nights, they would hand out the camp awards. And you could earn up to five years' worth of camp awards. After getting your award, you'd return back to your tent silently. And that often was a long walk in the dark. Especially for our troop, because uh, we camped out in what was called Outpost, a little further than everybody else, like a 25-30 minute hike. My particular year, because you got camp awards by your years at camp, my, my particular year was small. In fact, there's only one other boy in it from our troop, and he didn't always come to summer camp. So there were two years, my second and third year, when I was pretty young still, where I remember feeling a bit lost because I was the only one walking back to my tent at that time. It was a long hike. As I mentioned, we were in an outpost. It was like 25, 30-minute hike, and... Maybe it's not that long, but in the dark, because <laughs> darkness, you know, enhances everything. That short hike felt like it would never end. I remember feeling lost. The moon was not out. It was very dark. I had no flashlight. I kind of recognized the path, but not enough to really be sure if I was going the right direction. And I remember standing at one point on the trail for a long time trying to decide what to do. And so I walked one way a few steps to see if I could look down the path, and it didn't look right, but nothing looked right, because nothing looks normal in the dark. And I walked 20 steps down another way, and then I noticed something up ahead. A soft glow. My scoutmaster had placed what's called a smudge pot. It's a type of lantern, and in my middle school mind, it looked like a cannonball. Had a little wick that came out of the top of it. Little flame. Just a little glow. But that little glow made all the difference. And my scoutmaster had placed a smudge pot at each turn in the trail leading back to our campsite. That first lantern was one of the most comforting sights I had ever seen. The path was so alien and dark, and it became familiar again when I walked into that little light. That comforting sight assured me that my sleeping bag was up ahead. And I think the church is to be like that little lantern. Doesn't have to be super bright. Bright's good, but you don't have to be. When a wandering soul wanders which way leads to home and rest, 
we can be the lantern showing the way. And Jesus is asking his church to influence this world, not to lord over it, not to belittle it, not to show others how wrong they are or make fun of others, but the church is to provide the much-needed salt and light that leads to true life in Christ. We preserve, we add flavor to life, we provide what is truly essential to real living, we work with purpose, we bring clarity to confusion, and we comfort. Our world needs all of these things. Will you answer Jesus' call? Will you make sure that you are salt and light for the world? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are the fulfillment of the law. Thank you that Jesus is our righteousness and our life. I want to pray for the person listening in right now who does not yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Father, draw them to you. And I want to invite you, if you're listening, to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It just takes belief in what he did upon the cross and asking him to say, yes, I want you to be Lord in my life. Father, we also see your calling to be salt and light. Lord, help us to be salt and light that encourages others. Too often we want to dump salt in the wounds of our enemies and burn them with light. Help us instead to specialize in sweetness, in giving life, in providing guidance and comfort in dark moments. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.